Hello and welcome to episode 14 of our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. Uh, and blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Uh, today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, starting with chapter 9. And uh, Paul begins the chapter by talking about his rights as an apostle He gives us a great definition for what it means to be an apostle when he asks the question, uh, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That was more or less the defining characteristic of an apostle uh, is that this is an eyewitness who saw Jesus die and then saw him come back from the dead and uh, could testify about it. And this also means that uh, as he spreads the news of Christ's resurrection, he has Uh, many different uh, rights that God has given to him, uh, whether it be uh, taking a a paycheck or whether it uh, be receiving any kind of material benefit. Uh, There are all kinds of things that Paul had a right to expect from the people that he served with the gospel. And uh, the interesting thing is toward the end of the chapter, uh, he said, even though I have these rights, uh, I'm also free in Christ not to make use of those rights. Yeah, so he, while he's in Corinth, he doesn't take a paycheck like you said. He's working as a tent maker. He says he doesn't even take a wife. He is that dedicated to the gospel. Uh, and he goes on to talk about uh, whoever plants a vineyard and doesn't eat some of the fruit, or if he has a flock, doesn't drink some of the milk from the flock, uh, he says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. These are illustrations he has from vineyards and farming to show that a called worker is worthy of his wages. So, Pastor Lightning, I was going to ask you, uh, how might a congregation support their called workers or pastor or teacher? And maybe even some creative ways that your members have taken care of you in the past. Well, I I think of the first thing I thought of was years ago that uh, sometimes you had to, uh, as a preacher, depend on farmers. This is not me personally, but uh, in in farming communities, they might not give you cash necessarily or or a paycheck, but they would uh, provide you with um, farm fresh eggs. They would they would give you uh, sides of beef or or uh, you know different farm products like that. Um, uh, I, I, I guess I have served a, a man with the gospel who was a butcher, and he used to give us uh, sausage. So that was kind of like a, a Christmas bonus from uh, Stubby Lippert. Yeah. I had someone drop off some banana bread the other day. It lasted a whole day in our house. And others, you know, venison sausage. So if any of you are hunters and you want to just drop some off for the, Pastor Lightning and myself, we're fine with that. Uh, other members have helped me in shopping for a car or coming over to the house and helping me fix things. Since I don't know how to fix anything, I basically hold the flashlight way. That's my help <laughs> for them. Uh, and other things might be where a member takes out my wife for brunch or babysitting the kids when they were younger. Uh, as the district mission board chairman, I worked on setting up some counseling with Christian Family Solutions this week for one of our one of our missionaries. I think of for a, for a principal in a school it might be giving him release time 
for teachers in the school, giving them time to go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, just letting people know, their pastors and teachers, that they're appreciated. A high enough salary so they don't have to have WIC, you know, for milk and cheese. Uh, maybe it's a parsonage or a parish uh, parsonage allowance, you know, those kind of things to support your called workers. Yeah, you, you sort of jogged my memory now, and I'm thinking of, we never had, uh, we we don't have pets in our family. Well, we never did until more recently. We've got some birds and have dealt in fish before, but uh there was a member in a previous congregation who was a veterinarian, and uh, the pastor before me said, well, if you ever have a pet, uh, this veterinarian can take care of you. Uh, or I think of uh, some of the little uh, German ladies that I used to serve as uh, bring them communion and shut-ins at home uh, would include, usually usually there were very nice Christmas gifts and a little extra cash that she would say for gas money and so forth. Um the the interesting thing uh, with the Apostle Paul here is how he talks later on about not making use of those rights. Uh, if it will mean uh, winning more people for the gospel, uh, he, he said, I enslaved myself uh, to uh, all so that I might gain many more. Uh, he he didn't make use of his rights and instead ended up saying to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. And uh, to the Gentiles, he became like those who are not under the law and so forth. What does he mean by that? To become weak like the weak, to become a Gentile if you're a Gentile? Um, I, I think that there, there's a lot of uh, mirroring that that goes on there, and I say that because we uh, did a Bible class at, at my last congregation on First Corinthians, and there was a guy there that uh, was the owner of a network of radio stations, and he was a member of our church, and he even got our our church on the local radio station to do daily devotions for about two minute little two minute devotions, and and he sort of keyed on that. Uh, these passages from first Corinthians nine and, and said in the business world, this is called mirroring that you sort of see the person that you're talking to and, and you try to meet them where they're at. You, you try to reflect their feelings back to them so that you can show I have common ground with you. And then I want to share with you the most important news you're ever going to hear. Right. And yeah, it's putting yourself in the other person's shoes to become all things to all people, not changing a message, but maybe changing the way you present the message. So for Pastor Lightning, I thought for him to be able to communicate with teenagers, he needs to learn how to use TikTok and Snapchat. Uh, when I was in Kentucky, we had a number of our soldiers at Fort Knox that while they were stationed in Germany, uh, married a a German lady brought her back to the States. And so we had a lot of German ladies in the, in central Kentucky. And so once a month I preached in German. Now, I had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, our evangelism chairman was fluent in German, and we would download a sermon from the ELFK church, our sister church over in Germany, and I just read it. And the ladies laughed and chuckled because... My pronunciation was horrible, but that's because Germans decide to put a whole sentence and make it into one single word. Uh, I was just going to say, so now I can count on you to sub substitute for me in my German classes. Absolutely huh? not. Well, then I say the same thing about TikTok. I'm not getting on TikTok. <laughs> 
but the same thing for a, a congregation. It might be changing the culture of a congregation. That if there are, uh, if it's multicultural, you change your your way of reaching out into your neighborhood. It's looking at everything you do, whether it's a fellowship event like a chili cook-off or a pine car derby or a game night or a worship service and making sure there is an outreach element to that. Uh, one other thing, too, I just had this discussion with one of my Bible classes. We were talking about people wearing ripped jeans to church. because We have a, a number of our members, both teenagers and young adults who wear ripped jeans. And and I know that can be off-putting for older members who think you need to wear a shirt and tie and a dress to church. But I reminded them that ripped jeans for young people, that's their expensive clothing. And so when they wear their ripped jeans to church, they're wearing their best. They're wearing their most expensive clothing to church. And for uh, the older members to understand, hey, it may not be what I like, but uh, we're, we're trying to be all things to all people. And that's the young people's way of showing respect to God. The, that is uh, more of the fashion trend right now. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting way to think of it, that they're, they're actually putting on some of their best clothes for coming to church. Um, Paul uh, ends the chapter with some uh, sports analogies. Uh, you might think that doesn't sound like a very spiritual uh, topic to use for discussing religion, but uh, as we've just been saying, the, he's he's becoming all things to all people, and he wants us to do the same. And so he makes uh, two comparisons. One of them is to the uh, uh, track and field events, uh, running in the stadium, and then another one is to boxing. Uh, and uh, he, he, well, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say about those comparisons. Well, I was thinking not so much the running, but just being an athlete. Uh, last year, my daughter Miriam and I, we did three bike rides where it was 100 miles each day. So we put 300 miles on in three days. And uh, that's not something that you just decide, hey, you know what, we should do this, Miriam. No, we trained. Every day it was tw at least 12 miles, sometimes 20 or 30 miles. And then you have to eat right and sleep right. You have to wear the right clothing. And it's the same way whether it's running a race or boxing. It takes discipline. And Paul is using that comparison for the Christian life. As Christians, it takes strict training, maintaining a clear focus, keeping one's body under control, stay, saying no to sin, say, staying on the course, uh, keeping our eyes on the prize of heaven through Jesus. It is cheering on those that you're running alongside of. It says elsewhere in Scripture that uh, there are others, a great company of saints that are all around us that are cheering us on. And one of the, one of the neat things is at the first day, that we finished that ride because we weren't planning on doing others after that. I've got a great picture of Miriam holding her bike above her head as she finished 100 miles. And she's in Army ROTC, and her commander and her other soldiers know who she is because of that picture. And that's the encouragement for you who are listening, that as you go through your life of training your body as a Christian athlete, people are going to take notice and they're going to see you striving toward your spiritual goal. 
it also reminded me of a sermon that I preached on this at my first congregation. Uh, there was a, a woman, she was actually my first uh, adult con- confirmand that I ever had in my ministry, and she was a runner, and uh, she really liked the the theme that I picked out. I don't know if I could say it was original with me, but it, because I'm sure I've heard it elsewhere before, but uh, I think you could sum up this little section at the end of chapter nine nicely by simply saying, uh, run like the winner you are. You, you've already received the victory. Uh, Jesus has guaranteed your salvation. You are a winner. It's a done deal. Now, why don't you run the rest of your life like that winner that you are? Then in chapter 10, Paul talks about that the Israelites were baptized into Moses when they passed through the Red Sea. They ate the spiritual food and drank the spiritual rock. And in studying for this chapter, I was I, I read something I never heard of before. I don't know if you've heard of this, Pastor Lightning, that uh, there is a Jewish legend among the rabbis that a part of the rock that they received water from, that they took that rock with them and they were able to receive water from that rock throughout their journey. Have you ever heard that? I, I did, and it, it's actually interesting how you, they describe it. Um, I haven't studied this in detail, but I've heard it's described as like it would, it would break apart and it looked like a, a bunch of moths fluttering in the air, which when you think of it is kind of like uh, the way that movies today will depict, you know, movie makers will depict things like that. It like breaks apart and is a dust particle and then it comes back together. Uh, it's, I, I just thought maybe as a science fiction buff, you might think that was kind of cool. But And this is not the Bible. This is not in any way, this, like you said, this is a Jewish legend or a rabbi's uh, legend about the rock, that the rock followed them through the desert. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's all it is. Right. And Paul says that what really followed them was Christ. Uh, Christ in human flesh that would come later. But the people in Moses' time, they experienced Jesus' presence with them. I, I think that uh, this is also a good place to talk about baptism. Uh, because Paul says they were baptized into Moses. Um, And this is where we get that uh, uh, comparison between the dividing of the Red Sea and baptism. Um, It's it's a fair comparison to make because uh, you have God and his word combined with water and uh, a whole bunch of people passed through that water and then became his chosen people uh, by that by that rescue. And in the same way, uh, we've got God and his word combining uh, with water in the sacrament of baptism to make us his people uh, so that we are chosen by him in this sacrament. Uh, and that also comes with a warning because uh, Paul's point here is, I uh, don't think just because you are baptized that you can never fall away because here here's what happened the Israelites were baptized too and uh, they ended up uh, a lot of them dying in the wilderness that doesn't mean they were unbelievers it just means uh don't think that it's impossible for us spiritually to die as well yeah exactly he says uh don't become so proud of your Christian faith that you don't think that you can ever fall away from the faith. Uh, and as I was thinking about that, I, I thought of you know some of the sad occasions in my ministry of you know a, 
member of our leadership team that he got a, a divorce, uh, Christian young people that have gotten caught by their parents texting picture nude pictures to a boyfriend or girlfriend, a teacher that resigns from the ministry for cause, a pastor that has an affair with a member. I mean, these are you know good, strong, spiritual people that you would think like the children of Israel that have Jesus with them all the time, and these are pastors and teachers and leaders. Uh, confirmands that have been baptized, received the Lord's Supper, and yet they fell. Verse 13 is, uh, I think, a a great one that often gets misunderstood. Uh, People will say that uh, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Uh, Actually, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul says pretty clearly, God gave us much more than we could handle. Uh, that's not really his point in verse 13. He says, you're, you won't be tested beyond your ability, uh, meaning that uh, you you won't ever face a temptation where your only option is to commit a sin. Uh, that's, that's really what Paul is saying here. And uh, I I really like the translation of the EHV here, uh, where it says, God will also bring about the outcome that you are able to bear it. Uh, The other ways that I've grown up reading that uh, translation uh, makes it sound like there's an escape hatch that if, you know, there's some kind of little trap door that you can open up uh, and get out of the temptation. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying the outcome of being tempted is that you'll be able to stand up under it. Then he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper. Uh, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ. So we're not just drinking wine. We're not just eating unleavened bread. We are participating in drinking the very body of Christ and eating the body of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine. And then he talks about the unity that we celebrate this communion. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So that's really talking about close communion. So, Pastor Lightning, how have you described close communion in the past to people? Uh, I, first of all, I'm not afraid to also call it closed communion with the D on the end. Uh, that that this is this is something that is closed off. It is it is unique to a certain group of people that have committed themselves in faith to one another and agree on on all of God's word. Um, but I, I'm also happy to call it close communion too. Yeah, Pastor um, Hagen had a good way of illustrating it this week when he talked about it's closed to outsiders, which makes us close as members who take it. Yeah, so yeah. Both. And and when I when I would announce it in in the service before we would begin, uh, I tried to get into the habit of saying. Um, first of all, uh, to the visitors, we're glad you're here, and we look forward to the day when we can take communion together. We hope that happens, uh, but in the meantime, we want to make sure that you are understanding of everything that we teach and believe here at this church, and we want to make sure you agree with it by publicly joining this church uh, or one of our sister congregations. Uh, but until that happens, please rest assured of, and I would say you're, you're you know, you are forgiven 
uh, simply by hearing God's word as well, uh, trying to focus on the positives more than uh, just saying, no, you're not allowed. Right. I've said that too. Of It's not a no, it's a not yet. Mm, yeah. And I think of uh, back when I was pastor in a mission congregation in Kentucky, and thankfully I wasn't there this Sunday. A visitor came for the first time. He saw the announcement in the bulletin about closed communion, and he got up and went into the room right next to the sanctuary, and he was swearing up and down loudly so everyone in church who were trying to worship could hear him. And he was an army soldier, so he knew all the correct <laughs> swear words. Uh, and yet, uh, when I talk to people, they, they usually come around and they understand it, because I explain it in such a way of, you know, like, this is medicine. You know, I explain it that, mm. you know, just like... You know, kids, you know, at least when I was a kid, we enjoyed eating, you know, Flintstones vitamins. But the problem is that they taste good enough that kids think that they're uh, candy and they eat a whole bunch, but then they have too much iron and it's harmful. Hmm. And that's the way the Lord suffers. Not that you can take it too often, but it can be harmful if you're not ready for it. Or I explain it like when I tore my ACL, the doctor gave me some pretty strong pain medication. Mm-hmm. And it's beneficial when I need it, but it, they just don't hand out that strong pain medication to everyone. And it's the same way with the Lord's Supper, that it is for those who understand that they need it and are prepared for it, but it can be harmful for those who are not prepared, that they don't recognize it's Christ's body and blood, and that they're not in unity with us. And I explain people to people, hey, uh, like I said before, it's not a no, it's a not yet. And the nice thing is recently when we've had communion and, you know, maybe it's for a baptism or so forth, I explain it because uh, I get kind of nervous because there's a lot of uh, non-members that are there. And I'm assuming they're not, uh, they're not wells when they're coming for the baptism. And then I explain, uh, we ask you not to take communion today, just like so-and-so, the parents of the baby, they waited until they were confirmed, we ask you to wait until you've met with the pastor and taken the classes because we want you to understand what we believe and we want you to we want to know what you believe. It, uh, it would be like walking up to a pharmacist's window and saying, oh, give me whatever you just gave the person ahead of me. Uh, well, why can't I have the same thing that, that he's having? Or uh, like a, a married couple, uh, you wouldn't say to somebody that you're not married to, uh, well, why don't we show love to each other the way that you, you and your spouse show love to each other? Uh, that, that wouldn't uh, make sense in the eyes of the world as, a, as an upright thing to do. Um, I, I don't want to say much about it other than just to point it out uh, that in verse 20, uh, again, I, I kind of have a little bit of a fascination with uh, angels and demons. And you get this in verse 20, uh, where Paul says that uh, what the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. They think they're, they're offering it to a God, a false God. Uh, and maybe the takeaway there is that we should remember when there is false teaching, that's not 
neutral. I think sometimes we think, oh, well, there's false teaching at a church or there's a false religion and that that's just kind of like neither here nor there. It's not good, but it's not bad. Paul says, no, actually, when uh, the Gentiles offer their sacrifices to idols, demons hop right into that space uh, of the of the altar or they want to receive that worship. And uh, that that's a that's a dangerous place to be. That's interesting. I'm glad you said that because I've always thought that too and uh, didn't really tie it into this verse of yeah, when pagans are worshiping Allah and Buddha and so forth, what Paul's teaching, and I think that's what you're saying here, is they're worshiping another an, an idol, but it's not just going out into nothingness, it's going to... A demon. Yeah, a demon. A demon is saying, "I, I, I'm going to accept this worship to, for myself," and uh, and and I, I guess that does kind of tie into closed communion, doesn't it? If there's false teaching uh, in a church body and you associate yourself with that church body, uh, I don't think it would be good for us just to rush into taking communion together. Right, and that leads into chapter eleven, where Paul talks about how. You can't just go, say, to the Zeus temple on Saturday night and take communion, their kind of communion there, and worship there, sacrifice to Zeus, and then the next morning get up and worship at the Corinthian Christian house congregation uh, and then offer up praises to the triune God and take the fellowship meal of the Lord's Supper there. You can't, it's one or the other. It's either the worship and fellowship with the demons or it's worship and fellowship with the triune God and his followers. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think, I think you got a nice case study uh, toward the end of chapter 10, uh, talking about how is it that we navigate the murky waters of uh, interaction with people of this world, unbelievers, um, because you can't just say, well, let's just start our own little uh, Christian monastery and, and live by ourselves. Uh, so what do we do? And, and I think, we, I won't go into a lot of detail about it, but Paul gives us some good guidelines uh, in, in verse 30 and 31 and, and prior to that about uh, some things to keep in mind as you're interacting with uh, sinful society. Yeah, it's doing all things to God's glory, but understanding uh, that there are times you might take uh, take yourself out of society. You know, you know, my wife and I just had this discussion. We're very careful about how we spend our money, uh, so we don't want to spend our money in places that are going to support LGBTQ causes or Planned Parenthood. But we want to find businesses, whether it's for our phone or our car mechanic or whatever that are conservative Christian values. Personally, I've just stopped watching most professional sports because Mm -hmm. they become so woke. Uh, Not even women's USA soccer. And my daughters and I and my wife, we were big enough fans that we planned an entire vacation in Canada when the Women's World Cup was there several years ago. But you know everything that they're saying is totally against what we believe as Christians, and they're at odds with our faith, and I don't need to support them. I want to do everything to God's glory, and when I go and see this or I support this, I'm not supporting, I'm not giving glory to God. You uh, ready to move on to chapter 11? I am. Uh, 
the the uh, first large portion of the chapter deals with head coverings and uh, I, well I'm gonna hopefully I'm not throwing a curveball at you but uh, you, you when you t- you think of my students actually I think I've even overheard some of my students referencing this section as uh, maybe an example of um, why. Uh, the Bible it can be a confusing book or that uh, maybe some things in the Bible we don't need to pay attention to today because they don't apply to us anymore. Um, and it is kind of a tricky question when it comes to this idea of head coverings. Why, If this is something Paul commanded, then uh, why do we not still uh, require women in churches today to wear head coverings? Right. And I think what you ta- tell them then is, what is the principle he's talking about? He's talking about the principle of the roles of men and women. That principle is always valid. The application of wearing the head comings, those may not be. So it's principle versus application. So the principle stands. So what he's talking about here is with the head coverings that in Corinth and in the ancient world, Uh, the women would cover their heads for worship. That was out of respect to their husband and out of respect to God. Paul is making the comparison that loose women, those were the ones who did not wear their head coverings. And then Paul challenges those women, if you're going to go that far, go farther and shave your heads because that's what would happen to someone that was caught in prostitution or adultery to shame them. Uh, He says, God made man to be the head and woman to be the helper. And I always explain that in connection with uh, Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 of Eve being Adam's helper and wives submitting to the husbands as uh, the Jesus, that the husband is the Jesus role. He is to sacrifice for his wife, always putting her up on a pedestal. But then the wife's role is the God role, because so many times in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. I explain that in our society, a woman may feel like the helper role is the lower role, except throughout Scripture, God makes himself our helper, and that's what her role is to lift up her husband. I was honestly thinking if maybe you misspoke there when you said that the woman's role is to be a God role, uh, if you meant the husband's role is to be like Christ. But no, you're saying help being a helper is also something that uh, God, attrib- God, the God attributes to himself. Right. He's, a, he's a helper. And uh, one thing that I always like to come back to when I'm talking about the roles of men and women is... Uh, it, I'm usually, you know, if I'm talking to a woman, I will, I will say, Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything that he doesn't, that he hasn't done himself. Um, he submitted himself to his parents, to Mary and Joseph uh, in Luke chapter two. It's, it uses the same word for, uh, was obedient. Um, and uh, in the garden, he prayed, your will be done uh, and submitted himself to his father. And here too, uh, Paul even makes that same point. He says that uh, it, it's not unusual to say that someone else is your head. Uh, the, the wife says, my husband is my head. And the husband says, Christ is my head. And then even uh, Christ himself says, God is my head. Uh, that's, that's looking at uh, 
verse three. So uh, yeah, ladies, Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything that uh, he hasn't done himself. It happened to be that uh, last week I was teaching the sixth commandment to my seventh graders. And right after class, I was going to go look for a different vehicle for our family. And I used that as an illustration and an application. I said, does Mrs. Arling, and they know her because she's an aide in that building, uh, she's not telling me, just go buy this, because that's not her role as my boss. And I asked, well, should I just tell her this is what we're buying? They said, no, because then I'm abusing my role. I'm not her boss. I said, she's trusting me to go out and look at it with someone else that knows vehicles to take it and have the have her mechanic look at it, but I'm trusting her because she understands the finances, what we can afford and not afford. So we work together, but under this role of uh, submission and headship, you know, my Shelly said, Hey, Michael, whatever you find, if you think this is the vehicle, then you go for it. And that's, I think a good example of a role of uh, men and women. And you know, I, I call our vehicle, the, MUV, the mom utility vehicle now. And so she calls you Michael? She she doesn't call you like schnookums or baby or something like that? She does not. I've been working for a long time on it, but no. (laughs) Uh, I I also think it's worth mentioning what verse 11 says, that... we, we both in this relationship need each other. It, it's not a matter of, um, well, you know, men could just be fine on their own without women and, and or women uh, don't really need men. Uh, no, we, we both need each other. W- woman is not independent of man. Man is not independent of woman. Uh, we, we come from each other. Woman, woman came from man. And now every other man since then has come from the woman. Um, so that's, it's a good uh, symbiotic relationship. And then Paul goes on to talk about communion. So here I wanted to spend some time talking about every Sunday communion. That's something we've been practicing in our congregation for the past eight years. And I just had the opportunity to present a paper that I had written eight years ago uh, on every Sunday communion to our second campus, because now they're going to be celebrating every Sunday communion like we do. And so we talked about how the early Christians, they celebrated communion every Lord's Day. Every time they met for worship, they had the Lord's Supper. And then the early Lutherans, who were coming from the Catholic Church, they celebrated communion every Sunday, if not sometimes multiple days during the week, because the Catholics did that. So what happened? What changed? Well, in the 1600s, 1618 to 1648, you had the Thirty Years' War, so you didn't have a lot of pastors. They were, they were killed. Uh, and then you had something called pietism, and pietism was all about what you felt, and people found that the sacrament wasn't about feeling, so they didn't treasure the sacrament very much. And then the next reaction to pietism was rationalism. It's all about what you think. It's not about emotions. And what you think, the Lord's Supper isn't all that important. It doesn't make sense. It's it's a, a supernatural thing, and that goes against rationalism. Exactly. And then, out of pietism and rationalism, you had a lot of the German Lutherans moving over to you know northern United States, Midwest, 
And then you had Rise of Prideigers, the riding pastors. And like when I go and ride in my car to visit shut-ins, I can only do that once a month. That's when they would get communion, once a month. And so a lot of congregations had communion once a month. Then they got it all the way up to two times a month. But now we celebrate communion every Sunday. So Pastor Lightning, why do you think, what are some reasons why it's good to have communion every Sunday? Uh, first of all, I have to point out that if you know how to say rise a Prediger, then I think you could substitute for me in my German classroom. Uh, Did I say it right? Uh, almost, almost, yes. Okay. Uh, no, you just have me thinking. I, I, I do think there are a lot of good reasons to, uh, to have communion uh, as often as possible. Um, every Sunday would be a great uh, model to use if, if, you're one, if you're looking for a model. Um, it, it also has me thinking of, uh, it, I, I served a, a German congregation in Benton Harbor, Michigan, and uh, boy, the things I could tell you about communion celebration there, um, they, they had it once a month, like you said, and uh, not everybody in the German congregation would go every time once a month. Um, uh, one of the things that I heard was uh, in Luther's catechism, he had an introduction where he said, if you don't go... Uh, at least four times per year, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian. And he was setting that as a minimum, but uh, all these pragmatic business-like Germans thought to themselves, well, he said four times a year, so we're going to make it just four times a year. Honestly, the, the, you know, things turn into habits, and, and habits grow. And uh, I, there, there were people that I, I had not communed in the four years that I had been there. Who came to service, mm. you know, once a month or, or uh, every time we had German service uh, and, and wouldn't take the sacrament uh, the, the whole time that I was there almost. And uh, the, the idea was, well, if you're going to communion, then you must have done something really oh. bad uh, because you'd only be going to get forgiveness if you're a really bad sinner. Um, and, and that was something that somebody told me once too, was, uh, that they were taught you, you shouldn't make a habit out of going to communion and just thinking you can get forgiveness for free. You should focus more on doing less of that sinning that you're doing. What, one of the reactions that I had from a number of people when we started talking about every Sunday communion was, well, then it won't be special. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, so I'm only, I'm only going to give you the absolution every other week because that's special too. Or, you know what, maybe you should only tell your wife every other day that you love her. Yeah, if we had uh, sermons less often because that would make it not special if, yeah. too often, if we had preaching too often. Yeah, and so it's kind of showing them the, the silliness of their argument. And some of the things that I've said in the paper are reasons why we want to celebrate communion as often as it's offered is because communion is all gospel. There's no law in it, all pure gospel. That when the pastor absolves you in the beginning of the service, that's for everyone. But when you come to the Lord's table, that's one-on-one time with Jesus. Uh, Also, because we are such sinful people, we need something tangible, like water over our head in baptism, like something we can taste on our lips, on our tongue in the Lord's Supper. 
God created us with physicality. He created us as physical beings. And so this is one of the ways that he wants to talk to us. Can I just throw in, we have the Bibles open to it right now. So I just have to ask, what would you say about verse 29? If anyone eats and drinks in an unworthy way, uh, he eats and drinks judgment on it. That there's There's got to be a little law in there at least. If you're taking it without recognizing your sin, uh, you know, I, I think of a family that uh, I called the gentleman because I hadn't seen him in church in a long time. And I, I called and I got his wife on the phone and she was not a member. And she said, oh, he's at his girlfriend's house. I said, yeah, <laughs> what? Well, th- he happened to show up in church that next Sunday with his girlfriend, who also happened to be an inactive member. And they both came up to communion, and I was irate Hmm. because of that passage. Verse 29, eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Hmm. I felt I was going to be giving them judgment. Now, I never had the opportunity to talk to them about it because they never answered my phone calls or ever came to church again. But Hmm. they were unrepentant in their sin or... I had a member that uh, the the previous pastor here really messed up our church with a lot of false doctrines, and one of them was communion. And when I came here, I taught on you know adult confirmation class. That was a regular Bible study for a year. When we got to the lesson on communion, a member came and talked to me privately and said, so it's not a symbol? I always thought it was a symbol. <laughs> and so for a month, she didn't take communion because otherwise she would have been taking it unworthily and to her judgment until the Holy Spirit convicted her, changed her thinking and belief on it. And then we, words were never spoken again between us about it. She just came to communion. So it's not so much that the communion in and of itself is law or condemnation. It's the, the more the recipient kind of makes it condemnation by improper usage of it. Right. Because whether you recognize it as Christ's body or blood, it's, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one thing that I just wanted to say about uh, transubstantiation. Uh, we we often talk about those two extremes. You mentioned the symbol theory of communion that uh, the bread and wine just represents, or usually if people are saying this, it's bread and grape juice, just represent Jesus' body and blood. That is not what Christ taught. He said, this is my body and blood. Um, I always struggled with how exactly to grasp what we said the other extreme is the the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation uh, that it turns into his body and blood. Because I always thought as a kid, well, that kind of sounds like what we're saying. Uh, it wasn't until much later that I realized, um, and it's sort of helpful to look at verse 26 for this. Uh, Paul calls it uh, a, a bread and the cup, the wine, even after he says it's Jesus' body and blood. In other words, transubstantiation teaches the bread and wine go away. There's no more bread and wine there. It's all body and blood. And and that that we might be more in agreement with that than with the representation, but it still is false to say that because Paul here calls it uh, bread and wine, even after he says it is also Jesus' body and blood. And to that, if you've ever gone to a Catholic church, and a lot of my relatives are Catholic, so I've seen this, is you'll hear the ringing of a bell during the words of institution. That's the moment it changes its substance. 
And then you'll also notice that the priest uh, will save all of the host in the tabernacle, a little area that's locked up for the next sacrament because it's now it's Christ's body. And then he drinks all of the wine. He'll even take water and put it into the pat and the plate that the host was on and then swirl around and then put that into the chalice, swirl around to make sure he gets every single crumb and drop of Christ's body and blood and then drink that as well. Hmm. Because of that false theology, we talked one other time about the yeast of the Pharisees from Mark. Uh, Because of that false theology, they do all of that other stuff. It kind of got me wondering when we here at uh, Water of Life had our homemade um, uh, uh, unleavened bread, if if you really would get into that with um, the transubstantiation, there there was like a kind of a powdery substance to the to the wafers, and you know how far do you take that? Is 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 the powdery substance Jesus' body and blood too? Uh, it it. it yeah, we'll let we'll let God figure out things like that, and we'll just take comfort in the fact that He gives us Christ's real body in in the bread, uh, the whole thing, uh, as a gift. And then one last thing I wanted to say about uh, communion, taking it often, is uh, this is medicine for the soul. The devil has us so many times during the week that he's pounding us in music and social media and so forth. And so to be able to have that medicine every week, not just every other week. And if any of our listeners want to know more, I've got like a 10-page paper on every Sunday communion so that you can read it, maybe share it with your pastor and so forth. Just message me and we'll get that to you. Anything that you want to bring up on this chapter yet? Well, actually, just I want to explain that comment that I just made about the homemade unleavened bread. I thought that was awesome. It was actually very delicious, and uh, I appreciate the the member who who did that, and uh, I I think it's a wonderful thing. So I didn't want anything uh, negative to come across about uh, when I was saying that. It was just kind of something interesting to think about. So what Pastor Lightning is talking about is for the last few years we've had a member that makes homemade unleavened bread for Holy Week. So we have communion on Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, and Easter Sunday. And so we want to have something that uh, you know, reminds us of what the disciples took. Uh, with the wine, too, there's a great story that one of our members had told me that he went to New Hope, which is now our Caledonia campus. And he said, you know, when I take communion up there, it's very sweet, uh, very light wine. Uh, it's, it tastes almost like grape juice, he said. But he goes to our other church in town here. It's, I think it's probably Mogan David. It's, he says, it's just right. But when he comes to communion by us, we have a port wine. So it's wine that's fortified with brandy. So it's very strong. He said, but when I take communion at Epiphany, now the Racine camp, he says, when I take communion at, the, at Epiphany, I know I'm drinking the blood of Christ. <laughs> it's, it's strong stuff. It is strong stuff. Uh, chapter 12 uh, talks about spiritual gifts. And uh, it's also one of those uh, great passages that we use to uh, 
point out the truth that uh, there's no such thing as making a decision to become a believer. You you can't ask the Lord Jesus into your heart unless he was already there in the first place. Um, He he does that first. Uh, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Right, and then he talks about the spiritual gifts, and he compares it to a body. And he talks about uh, that all the bodies are unique and necessary. And I always think about, can the whole body be an eye? And it'd be kind of creepy if you saw a big eyeball rolling down the street. Uh, No, we need, uh, like the Wiggles. I don't know if your kids ever grew up on the Wiggles. Not 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 too much, no. Okay. They had a song of head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, and eyes and ears and mouth and nose, head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. You never I, heard Well, it? I know that song. Okay. I didn't... I, I knew that long before the Wiggles. Yeah. yeah, I think they quoted the Apostle Paul here. In fact, when you substitute for me in the German classroom, you can sing Kopf, Schulter, Knie und Fuß. I cannot sing that. <laughs> yeah, but... The idea is that uh, we need to be involved in in ministry, uh, and, and we need to have everyone involved. And here I was thinking about uh, when I was in pastoral theology class at the seminary. I don't know, Pastor Lightning, you and I had different professors, obviously, but our professor, I remember him telling me that, uh, and telling the whole class, if you see that the toilet paper roll is empty, don't change it. At, at church. At church. Yeah. <laughs> at home, you better change it. Yeah. yeah. If you're at church and you see the toilet paper roll is empty, uh, let somebody else change it. But that seems kind of rude. Why, why would he say that? Well, it, if you make a habit of doing everything, uh, then people are going to get used to you doing everything. And uh, quite frankly, you have a unique set of skills that uh, your time would maybe be better spent uh, studying the Greek or Hebrew of God's word uh, to preach a sermon or a Bible class than to spend all your time doing the the things that other people are very capable of doing. And that was his point exactly, is that other people can do those kinds of things. They can vacuum, they can you know, work on the parking lot or all those kind of things the pastor can do too. Maybe not very well, but he can do them. But the pastor has a unique set of skills that the others don't have. And that's you know preaching and teaching and administering the sacraments. He needs to devote his time to those things. And then the rest of the body of Christ. So maybe he's one of the eyes, and then you've got teachers that are the ears, and you've got some other leaders that are the mouth. And then you need the hands and the feet and the heart and so forth. And you need to get everyone involved in order for the body of Christ, the church, to be functioning properly. Uh, You're probably right. We didn't have the same PT professor, but there's a good chance that our two professors had the same last name. What was yours? Valesky. Oh, never mind. I had a a shitsy, so I knew his his father was also a PT professor. Um, as, as we get into chapter 13, you get a good uh, glimpse of how is, how is it that I would go about fi- figuring out what part I could play in, in the church. Uh, whatever role I have, uh, whether it's changing the rolls of toilet paper or shoveling snow or uh, serving the uh, Kringle and coffee uh, for Bible class, 
Um, how would I figure out which which thing to do? And chapter 13 really gives you a good guide for figuring that out. Uh Use, use love as, use concern and, and care for your uh, fellow believers as your guideline uh, for deciding what tasks you're going to undertake. And these verses are often used as a wedding text, you know, all about love. Love is patient, love is kind, and so forth. And the key is, uh, these aren't feelings. These are actions. They're behaviors. This is what love looks like. And so this is one of the paragraphs that I've used in wedding sermons on this text about children understanding love. Uh, Because children, they see love in physical, active ways because they don't understand abstract like we do as adults. Uh, They understand what they can see and touch and hear. So I've heard one child say, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. Another child said, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford. And another child said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. And love at its best is more than an emotion, Paul says. It is action. It's something you do. Because our love is based on Christ. Christ didn't just say from heaven, I love you, but he showed it in his actions, in his healing, uh, in his walking around and preaching and teaching, but most of all in his suffering and dying and rising. So love is, Paul says. Love does, he says. Love does not. All actions. Love is more than a feeling. It is a verb. It's an act of our wills. The other thing I like to do with this uh, chapter is sort of, uh, I I was never very good at algebra, but uh, I like to say, make an algebraic equation. Uh, You have the passage from 1 John that tells us God is love. And uh, since God is love, his word has said so, then uh, we can safely say all these things also about God toward us. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not brag. He's not arrogant. Um, he, he keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, it's a neat thing to think about with his forgiveness. And then uh, toward the end of the chapter, uh, this is a good way maybe to uh, settle disagreements or quarrels between believers. Uh, if we would, uh, if we would have an argument as, uh, as to what, uh, you know, what, what direction our church should take or something like that. Um, Paul really gives us the advice here. Uh, maybe we, maybe you need to grow up. Uh, he says, when I, when I was, have you ever told a member that just grow up? Well, no, I haven't, okay. but, uh, that, that's, has more to do with my cowardice than <laughs> with whether it's true or not. Um, uh, he says, I, I, I put childish things away. Uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and thought like a child and reasoned like a child. But, uh, if we are mature in our faith, then we need to put childish things behind us. Anything else you want to bring up in first Corinthians 13? Not really. All right. So next week, we're going to finish 1 Corinthians and then look at the minor prophet Hosea for two weeks. This is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Thunder and Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.